Well, thank you, worship team. Well, let's pray together. Lord God, we do praise you this morning because you are great. As the scriptures say, for thus is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. You are exalted, Lord God. You are high, lifted up, seated in the heavens, in glory, in full majesty, and you inhabit eternity. You've always existed in the perfection of your being, satisfied completely in who you are as the glorious, eternal, holy trinity. Your name is holy. We praise you for your moral excellency. You are the Holy One, the one who is pure, absolutely other, the one who is to be feared, to be adored. You are completely separate from sin. And your overriding purpose is to seek your own glory in everything. And we sing your praises because of your grace and mercy that's come to us in Christ as the scriptures say that you have justified the ungodly. And that's us. And so by faith in Christ, we are counted as righteous because of his work on that cross and in his resurrection. We praise you for saving the unholy ones like ourselves. And you have worked in our lives various circumstances to bring us all to the place where we are and have to be contrite and lowly of spirit, as Isaiah 57 says. And we pray that as Isaiah 57 says as well, that you would revive us in your power because you possess all power and that you would grant to us spiritual strength and bring about within us as your people a growing holiness in our lives, a thoroughgoing holiness. And we pray this morning that you would do this revival work in our hearts through your word. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. You know, a common phrase that we're all very familiar with is, uh, is accusing people of being Pharisees. Right? So... People accuse you maybe of being a Pharisee, or maybe you've accused other people of being a Pharisee. I mean, you might be right, you might be wrong. But when we say things like, that person is a Pharisee, we might have in mind three different types of things. So sometimes when we say, or we hear it said, that so-and-so is a Pharisee, we think about a hypocritical leader, a hypocritical leader or a teacher. In other words, someone who doesn't practice what they preach. And so that's a good term. We call them a Pharisee. Other times, Pharisee, that accusation is about superficial religion or legalism. In other words, we might attach it to someone who, because of her religious rules and her commitments to a particular culture of life, that the heart really isn't in it. In other words, she judges other people by her own standards of righteousness, but not by God's standards of righteousness. Thirdly, we might, when we call a person a Pharisee, think of a person who's proud and ostentatious and self-promoting, a person who basically just uses their religion to promote themselves or wants to always draw attention to how spiritual they are compared to other people that they don't think are that spiritual. Now, all of these things are really bad, right? But... The greatest dan danger and tragedy of, of all, in all of that, is losing sight of Jesus Christ. He's the key to all true spiritual knowledge and life. And nothing upsets Jesus more, as we read through the gospel accounts, than those types of people who keep other people in spiritual ignorance and keep them out of the kingdom of God because of how they teach and how they live. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. We'll read the story as we go, but I pray this morning that we would see Jesus' desire and it would become our own, that we want people to hear the gospel. We want them to hear the true gospel, the gospel that actually gives true spiritual knowledge and true spiritual life to people. 
You know, Luke is advising us here as he tells the story, really, to keep our focus on Jesus. And so what we learned this morning is that Jesus' teaching is the key to knowledge and of entering the kingdom of God. So in our storyline, Jesus is attending a luncheon um, that a Pharisee puts on, the luncheon for a bunch of Pharisees and scribes, and Jesus decides this is a great time to make a great point. And so he makes a scene at the party. Actually, he makes a lot of points about these two groups. In other words, you know, I've entitled the message The Key of Knowledge, but an alternate title might be How to Ruin a Dinner Party in Two Easy Steps. First, don't wash your hands. Second of all, pronounce six judgments on your host. I mean, that'll do it every single time. So in verses 37 to 44, we see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees because they just trap people in their defiling knowledge. And then in verses 45 to 54, he rebukes the scribes uh, for throwing away the key of knowledge. And so in our passage today, it's commonly referred to the six woes. It's unique to Luke. And as we go through it, you'll see why so much opposition is coming up against Jesus on his traveling to Jerusalem. I mean, if you say these kinds of things to people, you're going to make enemies very quickly. Now, there's a similar passage in Matthew 23 at the end of Jesus' ministry where the seven woes are pronounced. And and just for those of you who are interested, that's most likely a very different occasion. There's a conceptual similarity, but textually they're very different. Um, Matthew 23 is a much fuller diatribe. Um, and it occurred toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Also, that's a speech that's given publicly to warn the crowds and disciples about their religious leaders. They're not really going to lead you in the truth. But in our passage that we're looking at this morning in Luke's episode, this is a private rebuke at a party, at a luncheon that the Pharisees and the scribes are, are throwing for themselves, really. So may we come to appreciate that Jesus is the key to knowledge and the way to enter the kingdom of God. So first, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for trapping people in defiling defiling teaching. So the outline of this section is pretty simple. In verses 37 to 44, Jesus makes a scene at the party in verses 37 to 38, and then he denounces the Pharisees, and finally he pronounces woes of elaboration on them. So it begins in verse 37, while Jesus was speaking. So we're still in the same storyline. He just got done teaching about how he's the light. And it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he didn't first wash before dinner. So Jesus accepts this invitation to the Pharisee's home along with other religious leaders, and it's likely that Jesus would do this often. Uh, These are great opportunities to teach, so why wouldn't you accept them, right? So now normally... It would be expected that Jesus did keep the oral tradition. You know, it's a ceremonial washing of hands that we're talking about here. Um, At this meal, Jesus, though, decides he's not going to do it this time. He's not going to perform that traditional hand-washing ceremony, which was simply dipping your hands in a bowl, uh, symbolizing purity and keeping ritual, ritual purity. It's not like washing your hands with soap and water so you're clean, okay? So, like we do. But it's a ceremonial thing. And so Jesus is setting up the situation to continue his message that he just got done talking about and apply it very, very directly to these people. So if you glance back to the previous paragraph in chapter 11, verse 33, Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar or under a peck measure, but on the lampstand in order that those who enter may see the light. The lamp of your body is your eye, and when your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light, but when it's bad, your body is also full of darkness. So watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined as when a lamp illumines you with its rays. So Jesus' teaching is the light that the Pharisees and scribes are trying to hide. And the light that they think that they have within them, it's not really light. It's darkness. And so the Pharisee Pharisee host and others are shocked and offended by what Jesus did not do, the ceremonial washing of hands. Now, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus had pretty much devolved. I mean, they started off much better than we see them here, but they lost the heart of true religion over time and this that they were supposedly trying to teach and to live. And so then Jesus goes on and denounces the Pharisees in verses 39 to 41, and he says, And the, and the Lord said to them, 
Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms. But give as alms those things that are within you, and behold, everything is clean for you. So notice it's the Lord that um, Luke refers to Jesus as, and he responds to their thoughts, everything that's going on in their minds is recorded so often in Scripture, only as only he can do, and he comments on their foolishness because they're overlooking inner piety, inner holiness, inner righteousness. And so he's picking up on the ceremonial procedure, another one, washing cups and plates, similar to the washing of hands that has already been discussed. And he uses it as a metaphor for surface piety. And he illustrates the silliness of this by the washing only of the outside of cups and plates. And when you think about that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Of course, they would also wash the inside of their plates and cups at other times, but that's not the point here that he's making. Ceremonial purity is not sufficient, is what he's saying. And they were not as pure as they thought they really were. They lived lives, you see, that were only ceremonially pure. That's Jesus' point, and nothing more. In other words, he's saying they are useless for real use because they're only for show. That's an amazing indictment. He accuses them of internal robbery and all sorts of wickedness because they look out, good outwardly, but inwardly they're filled with all sorts of greed and evil. Ceremonial purity is not enough, just like with the dishes. Not only is it nonsense to clean the, only the outside of an eating instrument or, or a person, but it's extremely foolish to ignore an inner being, your inner being. God made both the inside and the outside of people. And so to be clean before God requires both. For example, they of all people would have been exemplary in giving alms to the poor. In other words, giving money and help and resources to poor people. That's why they're used as an example. But they must do so from the heart out of love for God and love for people. If not, then they're just robbing God and men and living, greed, living their greed and their wickedness, though they look good, to other people. Now, we understand how all this hypocrisy works. It's not like we're unfamiliar with this, and it's not like it only happened back then. And we know how it can work in us as well. I mean, we could pick up on and think about maybe some good works that we're really good at doing, and we know how it can work out in our lives that we just sort of do them, but we're not really doing them for God's glory. And we understand how important inner piety is for, for true piety before God, but it's easy to forget that. And we also understand, of course, that as Jesus taught, if we really want to please God, we have to be given a new heart from him to be thoroughly cleansed on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're so thankful that he did that for us at our conversion. For then, because of God's grace, you see, we don't have to live out a false goodness, trying to make ourselves acceptable to God and pretending before other people that we're actually very spiritual. We don't have to do that because God is the one who cleansed us. Well, then Jesus pronounces three woes of elaboration, beginning in verse 42 through 44. And he says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. So woes are much more serious than just an exasperation, alas. They're announcements of terrible judgment and condemnation. It's like the opposite of a blessing is what Jesus is doing here. And so there are three things that they failed at, he's drawing attention to. First, failed tithing, failed tithing. Second, inflated pride, inflated pride. And third, defiling teaching, defiling teaching. So first of all, this 42, 43, 44, and 42, failed tithing. They're meticulous about tithing agricultural products even. So which uh, tithing agricultural products is prescribed by the law? But they've even developed traditions down to spices and herbs. Is that a good thing? Or is that a bad thing? 
but they have ignored justice and love of God, that is, deeds of mercy, which is much more serious. And this is no little mistake, because it shows that they have a completely distorted understanding of the whole design and intent of the law. It's what Jesus talks about when he talks about the weight of the law. You see, good religious activity without religious integrity is really worthless. Micah, in the prophet Micah, chapter 6, we read, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so, of course, true righteousness means you have to perform everything. Not just the easy things, like tithing. And not just the better thing, the morality that he talks about here, the mercy. It has to be a thoroughness of all religious duties that God has laid on you. So they fail in their, their tithing. Their second woe that Jesus pronounces upon them is their inflated pride in verse 43. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with honoring people in the human realm. I mean, scriptures elsewhere teach us to give honor to whom honor is due. But the point is, they've exceeded propriety. And you see that in verse 43, where it says that they've come to the point where they just love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And what's being talked about here is they've come to love the front seats in the synagogues because that's where the wealthy and influential people sit. I mean, they're right here. I mean, just look at them. Right here, right? The wealthy and influential, they sit in the front. They get the best seats. And they've also come to love getting these involved, lengthy greetings in the marketplace that make them feel and look superior to other people in society. It's not just, hey, how you doing? But it's a long, involved, flowery um, greetings of who they might be, you know, like somebody meeting a movie star or meeting a political figure. So Jesus is soon going to tell a parable about this, and this is his final lesson from Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And then he's soon going to speak against, again, um, very directly to the same issue in Luke 16. He says, now the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So you have to be humble before both God and men. And Jesus is attacking, in verse 43, their inflated pride. It's not only have they failed at the most basic religious duty of tithing, they've also failed because they're just puffed up with pride in who they are. But finally, in verse 44, it gets much worse. And defi their teaching is defiling. I mean, this is their main role. This is why they exist, is to teach people. But in verse 44, we read, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. So this is the crowning indictment, because they're supposed to be guides for the people. I mean, people would follow them and what they would teach and how they would act. And, and Jesus is saying that they're just like hidden graves. And people then walk over you and they get defiled and they don't even know it by being next to you, by listening to you. And that's because people only see outward piety. I mean, the general populace only sees what these Pharisees present, how they speak and how they act and the clothes that they wear, etc., but they can't see the internal corruption. So they're good followers. But they don't see how it really affects the Pharisees because all this stuff really affects them deep down in who they are as people. And ultimately, it's going to come out somehow, somewhere, sometime in their teaching and in the way they act. You see, the Pharisees are a spiritual death trap, is what Jesus is saying. But they're supposed to be a source of life to people. They're spreading spiritual uncleanness to everybody around them. They're teaching them to do the same types of things, to be puffed up with pride, 
and to not fulfill religious duties, to eat all of them that God requires. They don't understand, these Pharisees, the spiritual truths that they're supposedly teaching about with sufficient clarity, and they don't understand it from personal experience. Because if they lived it, then they would know how to teach it. You see, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for trapping people ultimately here in defiled teaching, and really all the woes fit under that same category. But you know, we can see these common sins of people that are just outwardly religious um, today as well. It's not just these people that we read about in the Bible from a long time ago. Hypocrisy in the heart. I mean, we, we can see that. We can see partial observance and obedience. We can see people and that are just being ostentatious and showy about their spirituality. And then we can see, even though other people may not see it yet because they're so trapped in their hypocrisy, how it ruins their relationship with God, really, and affects the teaching of other people. But we praise God for his forgiveness if these things have been a part of our lives or occasionally trap us. Because as true children of God, we know that the work of the Holy Spirit is continuing to work in our lives and to purify us and to work out within us an actual righteousness so that we can become like Jesus Christ. But you see, the Pharisees' teaching is defiling precisely because they reject Jesus. I mean, that's, that's the focus. Jesus is the key to knowledge. He just said he's the light. And here he's gonna, we'll find out he's the key to knowledge. In other words, if you want to understand the law, if you want to understand the Old Covenant, if you want to understand the progress of the history of redemption, well, Jesus is the key to knowledge. If you want to get into heaven, if you want to understand what is the kingdom of God, where it is, and what it's about, Jesus is the key. He's the one. So second of all, then, he goes on and he rebukes the scribes for throwing away the key of knowledge. Sort of surprised he hasn't been kicked out of the party yet, but that's coming. So then we go on, and so the scribes get really upset. And so in verse 45, we read about that. There's this outraged objection over what Jesus is saying to people. And then Jesus decides to pronounce two more woes. And then he decides that he's going to expand on one of them to the point, and these are the harshest words from Jesus' lips recorded in the Scripture. And we see those. And then... After that, he pronounces the last woe, and then he leaves the party, and we see what the results are. So the scribe is outraged over all this. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So the scribes were experts in the law. Most basic understanding here in many translations, just lawyers. But they would help the Pharisees um, figure out their interpretations and their teaching, and many of the scribes actually belonged to the Pharisaical party and assisted them with their agenda. They had an agenda, believe it or not. So this scribe registers his offense with Jesus because of all these comments that he's making, and he believes Jesus is very wrong to be saying these kinds of things. He says, you offend us also. He's attacking the piety of the most religious people in the land. He's way out of line. And these are very contemptible comments to be making about people that are a part of the religious establishment. So Jesus then does not apologize to the scribe. He turns on the scribe and continues pronouncing wo woes upon them as well. And about twice as much, twice as long. And really, both sets of woes, all six of them, apply to both groups. They apply to the Pharisees and the scribes. Anybody who fits in that category of religious hypocrisy, fakeness. So Jesus pronounces these next two woes in verses 46 to 48. And he says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent 
to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. So there are two woes in here. The first one is putting extra biblical burdens on people. That's in verse 46. The second in verse 47 to 48 is he pronounces a woe on them because they are complicit in murdering the prophets that God sent to his people. These are pretty serious woes. Extra biblical burdens. Jesus accuses the scribes of misinterpreting the law and continually adding to oral tradition. In other words, continually making up a list of the things that you should do if you're a good follower of God and continually adding to the list of the things that you should not do if you really love God. And of course, they go beyond Scripture. They're not part of Scripture. But you know how you get people to accept that stuff? You put a Bible verse next to it. It works today, too. That's how you do it. You tie it into Scripture somehow, but if people aren't watching, they, they don't know that you just made something up. But it's not actually in the Bible. It's not what the Bible teaches. And so they're building up this tradition which becomes a huge burden on the people because they're trying to keep it all because they want to be good followers of God. And these are the religious elite, the people who know God, the people who study the Scriptures, the people who teach, the people who they watch that look like they're just godly people. And the word that's used here for burden is a wonderful word in the original language because it's a word that would be used to describe the cargo of a ship. It's quite an image. You ever been in a shipping lane on the ocean and seen a huge ship, of course, they weren't that big back then, but a huge ship with all those containers on it. What if you had to carry all those containers on your back? That's what Jesus is saying about these people. He's putting all of this weight on people's back. It's like they have a whole cargo ship that they have to lug around to keep all these rules that are man-made rules, not biblical rules. And so they're crushing people with their teachings, their religious rules. And worse than that, they don't even lift a finger to help people. How they could keep these things, these rules that they make up. That's because they're such sophisticated experts. You've seen these people, right? Because they set it up in such a way and discuss it in such a way that the average follower of God who's just sort of a peon out there can never measure up, can never really be as good as the religious professional. But then they also set it up in such a way that there are all these nice little neat loopholes on the side that they can slip through and apply to them. And there's always one for them. You know these types of people. One New Testament scholar said this about this passage and saying there's something wrong with scribal labors, these labors of these scholars, which multiply the number of ways in which a person may offend God but can't help him to please God. There's something wrong with studying the scriptures, the scholar's saying, if all these people can come up with are a bunch of ways in which you can offend God, but they don't help you please God. Because isn't that the goal? And this is a major reason why so many people at Jesus' time responded to his invitation that goes like this, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. He's offering freedom to these people that are being defiled and burdened by religious hypocrites. And he's offering relief to them because these people want relief from their sin. But none of these religious experts seem to know how to get that relief. Because they haven't been following the prophets who all point to Jesus Christ. The one who would relieve us of our sin burden that is way bigger than even a cargo ship of human-made rules. 
Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my load is light. What a contrast. So, the woes continue because these scribes have created all these extra-biblical burdens to put on people who are hoping to please God. Second of all, he goes after them for their complicity in the murder of the prophets in verses 47 to 48. He says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. These are prominent leaders Jesus is talking about, and what they're doing is they're, they're giving money, they're raising money to build monuments to the Old Testament prophets. Sounds like a great idea. The only problem is, it's hypocrisy again, because they're building monuments to great prophets, yes, but it's their ancestors who murdered them all. And Jesus interprets that whole setting and situation as saying that basically, you approve what your forefathers did. Because you're still not giving heed to the message of those prophets that you're building these monuments to. They all spoke about me, Jesus has been saying. We're already in chapter 11 in Luke, two years into his ministry approximately. He's been teaching that everything in the scripture points to himself, the Messiah. And Jesus is accusing them of completing the apostasy, the murders of their fathers, by building these monuments. They're really building a monument to their own hypocrisy, their own evil. They're building a monument to their own damnation. They're building a witness against themselves. In summation, another scholar said, what we see here is an exhibit of a veneer of reverence while ignoring the need to repent. A veneer of reverence by building those monuments to the Old Testament prophets, speaking well of the Bible maybe, but then ignoring the need that Scripture speaks, the prophets spoke to, to repent. And so this woe is so significant that Jesus decides to elaborate on it, and Luke keeps it in front of us, and so he expands upon this prophet murdering. And starting in verse 49, then he continues, Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Notice how he begins, this is from the wisdom of God. Very interesting phrase that he chooses, meaning that all that he's been talking about and everything and how the history of redemption has unfolded, even with the murdering of the prophets, you might think, well, that's a terrible, terrible thing. Of course it is. But God has allowed it all in the unfolding of his plan up until the final day of the coming of the Messiah. All that unbelief and mayhem the people did by not listening to the prophets, it's all part of God's wisdom and his plan. That's one meaning that Jesus has by using the phrase, the wisdom of God says. The second is, he's saying he speaks for God. He's saying he is the wisdom from God. And that everything that comes out of his mouth, that's God's wisdom. And what he declares is absolutely true. But you see, he's saying at this point, the history of the Jewish people has almost thoroughly become one of being anti-prophet. They persecuted and killed the prophets that have been sent to them by God throughout history. In fact, you can even look back at the time of the exile, and the prophet Jeremiah ministered at that time, and there have been like 
900 years after the Exodus has already transpired, you'd think the people would have learned to listen to a prophet over 900 years. And listen to the words of Jeremiah. Really, God is speaking through him. 725, chapter 725, you can look it up on your own. The whole chapter is amazing. But since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising early and sending them. Yet, they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. See, that's where Jesus got the language. Came from the prophet Jeremiah. They did more evil than all their fathers. So by this monument building back into Jesus' time frame, that generation, those leaders that he's talking about, was in effect, he was saying, they were all agreeing with this anti-prophet stance that led to the exile so many years ago anyway, and they're continuing this evil tradition to the very end. They're going to see it through, you see. They're going to even persecute the Messiah and his apostles. By their own actions now, they show hearty approval of the past murders, and they reveal their wicked desire. It's almost as Jesus is saying, it's like, I know who you really are. Deep down, you wish you could have been back there to slaughter the prophet yourselves, don't you? That's what he's saying to these people. Jesus is declaring that the same situation continues in his time and will continue. Notice the word apostles in there. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah, he's talking about his apostles. And we're going to read about this as you continue in the gospel of Luke because they're going to murder Jesus, put him on a cross. These same people that he's talking to. And then there's James, persecutions of Peter, Murder of Stephen, persecutions of Paul. The list goes on and on. You read the book of Acts, it's just filled with it. The fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy right here. So that generation of leaders is going to complete the sins of their fathers at the most crucial point in the history of all of the history of redemption. And God is going to charge them for their willing participation in what we could call the great, the great conspiracy. The great conspiracy against God's prophets from the Old Covenant. You see, it began at the beginning when Abel was murdered by Cain. That's when it began, Genesis 4. And it continued on. You just read the pages, read the pages, you read the stories. And Zechariah gets murdered under King Joash in the temple. You can read that in 2 Chronicles 24. It covers everyone from the first to the last murder of the prophets, the spokesman for God in the Old Testament canon. So these are, no, uh, undoubtedly, these are the harshest words on Jesus' lips that have been recorded for us in Scripture. And that particular generation, its leaders, mainly, deserved this great judgment of God. Their judgment is so severe because they've rejected Jesus the Messiah, Jesus and his kingdom, and he's the culmination and the fulfillment of all those prophets. You see, those prophets, though they're dead, they still speak. But these people, these scribes, these Pharisees, they've disobeyed all the prophets because they failed to recognize who Jesus was. He's the Son of God and the Messiah. They refused to believe all of the Bible. So judgment upon that generation would be immediate. We'll see it described at the end of Luke. It would be most visible when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. But the judgment would be continued. It would be carried on eternally in hell. It's being carried on as we speak. And it's going to be augmented at the eschaton when Jesus returns. And it leaves us to ponder God's righteous judgment upon people who refuse to recognize who Jesus Christ really is. Well, then Jesus pronounces the last woe, as if that's not enough, right? And then you get to verse 52, and he says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you've hindered those who were entering. They locked the door, threw away the key. 
this is really the final woe that brings in all the other woes, throwing away the key of knowledge. So just like the Pharisees above, the third woe, two sets of three, that's, all, that's the crowning indictment against the scribes. And this last woe reveals to us the, really the main point this morning. The main point of this whole passage is that the key of knowledge has to do with Jesus. And so here, the message starts finally to turn positive for us, positive for the readers of Luke, those who want the burdens of their sins lifted, those who really want to know God beyond the religious hypocrites of the religious elite and the religious professional, the showman. You see, the key of knowledge has to do with Jesus, him being the divine Messiah. He's the eternal son of God who was born in the lineage of David and would be our savior. The key to knowledge is the things that Jesus taught that's recorded to it for us in scripture that his apostles faithfully continue teaching us in scripture. Jesus Christ is the key to all true knowledge of God. If you want to truly know God, there's only one pathway and that's through Jesus. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. But it's wonderful to come through him. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, this is what's recorded by the Apostle Paul about Jesus. He's the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the, wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. We know this is true. And all that we know about God that's really true, we know it through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And every blessing and everything fits together in our understanding of a biblical worldview and what the Bible teaches when we know Jesus Christ. It starts to make sense. Things fall into place. It doesn't mean that there aren't any mysteries, of course. God himself is the greatest of them all. But by knowing Jesus Christ, we now have access to true knowledge of God. You see, in these scribes, they kept themselves out and they kept others out of the kingdom of God because they opposed Jesus. It's very simple. They don't have a true knowledge of God, Jesus is saying. That's quite an indictment. They don't have a reliable knowledge. They think they do, but the light in them is darkness, as he just got done teaching. So being the knowledgeable experts, their responsibility was to open up the door of life to people. But instead, they shut it, locked it tight, and threw away the key. The throwing away of the key, that's putting Jesus on the cross. They thought they got rid of it, got rid of him. Well, well, that does it, so the nice luncheon's over. And now we get to the results in uh, verses 53 to 54. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Well, we sort of talked about that last week. You know, another way you know a religious hypocrite is because they like to listen to teachers who are good teachers just to find something to trap them in. They're not coming to learn something. That's how you know. So Jesus leaves the luncheon very quickly, gets followed out by these guys, and they're angry, and they assault him with questions because they are now fully decided they're opposed to him. They've increased their hostility. <clears throat> their plots against Jesus start coming uh, into full force on how to hunt him down. They're more determined than ever. They're going to charge him with heresy, and they're going to get rid of him. So in this passage, we see in the second half that Jesus rebuked the scribes. Really, ultimately, they did a lot of evil things, but ultimately, he rebukes them because they threw away the key to knowledge. In other words, they threw away who he was and who he taught, what he taught about himself. So, you know, we can see some of the common sins that are brought up here, too, from the outwardly religious people, but it's not just from that time frame. I mean, we have people who create rules that somehow Christians are supposed to live by, but those rules aren't in the Bible. How in the world does that ever please God? I guess these people think they're smarter than God. And we all know people who ignore the need for personal repentance. 
that just like to talk about spirituality and Christianity and they're always just too positive about things in their own life. And we know people who don't understand that this is really moving away from God and salvation. You start creating your own religion, your own Christian culture, and you try to make people obey it, you're moving farther and farther away from God and you're taking people with you. That's evil. So if we want to know God and have his salvation, then we have to pay attention to Jesus' teaching because it's Jesus' teaching alone. It is not man-made teaching. It is not the teaching of the religious professional. It is not self-righteousness that is going to get us into the kingdom of God. It's only Jesus' teaching that's going to lead to further knowledge. And so we learn in this passage this morning that religious piety can be deaf if we don't listen to the right people. And those right people are the people who present Jesus Christ as the key of all knowledge. That's how you know. Who do they talk about? And how do they talk about it? You see, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they just trapped people in a religion that wasn't really about him. Jesus rebuked the scribes because they flippantly dismissed him, who's really the only way you're going to get to know God. You see, nothing upsets Jesus more. I think you see that now, right? He was not happy at this dinner party. Nothing upsets Jesus more than those people who keep other people trapped in spiritual ignorance and out of the kingdom of God. And hopefully it upsets us as well, so much so that it moves us to the point that we actually want to make known to people the true gospel. That we want to invite people like Jesus did with his own words to people. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then we offer people that gospel, because that's the only true one. You see, true Christians even, as we read a passage like this, we don't gloat over the indictments against these scribes and Pharisees, only it's very tempting to do so, of course. But we don't gloat over the, those indictments by Jesus as much as taking a good look at ourselves and God's mercy in our life. As, as another scholar, Leon Morris, and pastor put it, it so easily becomes a habit to live in such a way as to sustain or acquire a reputation for piety without giving heed to what we are deep down, deep down. Perhaps the closest self-reflective parallel in the New Testament is this verse, 1 Timothy 4.16, so you can mark that one down, 1 Timothy 4.16, where the apostle says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16. By God's grace, we're rescued from that way of life. And then the heart of our passage is really the centrality of Jesus Christ. It always is. That's why we gather here on a Sunday morning, to worship him. How central, this may sound like a silly question, but think about it. How central is Jesus Christ to your practice of Christianity? How central is Jesus Christ to your own practice of Christianity? You know, is this the kind of teaching you take up where Jesus is presented as, as the key of knowledge? Because it's, it's how we grow in our faith. It's by understanding the gospel further and deeper. It's how we started our Christian walk, and it's how we're going to complete it. And if you need help thinking you went off the path, read the book of Galatians. It's very clear how you can get off the path and how you can get back on and follow Jesus Christ and the true gospel. You see, understanding who Jesus is, the Son of God, not just as a doctrinal statement that you check the box, yes, I believe that, I'll sign the statement. But to understand that in your mind and in your heart that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and to understand what he, his cross was about, why he died for our sins and what his resurrection was about, 
it's all about redemption, about rescuing us from a sin and giving us eternal salvation and understanding that by putting faith in this, all the Bible's going to make sense. I mean, that is what the Christian life is all about. And that's how we grow in our walk with God. That's why we're studying the Gospel of Luke together. So that we can know Jesus better. That's why we're studying Luke. Okay? We're studying Luke so that we can know the Gospel better. That's why we're studying the Gospel of Luke. Right? His storyline. of That's why. And it's all going to fit perfectly together and there's no need for confusion when we accept Jesus Christ. If we understand him, all the Bible, all of history, all of life, it comes together, it makes sense. And, you know, it takes our whole lifetime, though, to explore it all and to enjoy it all. Because you can't just sort of study doctrine, be done with it, and think you got it all figured out. Because if it doesn't affect your heart and your own worship, then you haven't really studied anything, have you? Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, the scriptures say. You see, and so this full understanding, and you know what? We're never going to get it. Not even in heaven. After 10,000 years. Still going to be absolutely amazed at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Absolutely astounded at what the gospel is all about. Never figure it out. Because God is infinite in his perfections and his being. And we're finite creatures. But it's going to be glorious because our understanding will be so absolutely purified that we'll be able to see him just as he really is. So let's take Luke's God-inspired advice this morning and focus on Jesus. Jesus' teaching, you see, is not just the key to knowledge, it's the key to more knowledge. And Jesus' teaching is not just how you get into the kingdom, but it's how you can have a more powerful experience of the kingdom. And so, in God's providential design, this morning we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table together here in a moment. Focus is all about Jesus. That's why we do that. That's why we do this as well. So at this time, if uh, those men are going to help me serve the table, if you'd please come forward.